Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. What will the world of tomorrow be like? Kelly and Zach Wienersmith give us a snapshot of the transformative technologies that are coming soon, from space elevators to origami robots, and explain how they could change our world in astonishing ways, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Thank you, and thank you for coming. We're so excited to be able to talk in such an amazing space. Uh, I'm Kelly Wienersmith. I'm a parasitologist at Rice University, and this is Zach. I draw cartoons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep, Saturday morning breakfast cereal (laughs) uh, in particular. So we decided we were going to write a book about technology. And we were trying to decide how specific we wanted to be about the predictions we made about these technologies. And so we were really excited when we found a paper written in 2011 by some undergraduate students at Hamilton College. Their paper was called, Are Talking Heads Blowing Hot Air? And they looked at the predictive abilities of 26 pundits, and it turned out that predictive abilities for some of them were pretty good, but for a lot of them, they were really bad. And the important thing to us was that they all still had jobs. (laughs) So we were perfectly positioned to write a book about technology and give predictions about when these technologies were gonna happen. But ultimately, we decided that what's interesting isn't that the Wienersmiths think it'll be 50 years before a space elevator comes about, for example, but what's interesting is that there are some really major challenges to overcoming these technologies and to making them become part of our day-to-day life. And that's a lot more interesting than our poor predictive ability to determine when these things are gonna happen. So we decided that instead of predicting what would happen, we would lay out for you the challenges that are being faced by the 10 technologies that we put in this book. Uh, And we think that that's important because in the future when you read popular science articles about these technologies, you'll be better able to evaluate the predictions that the people put forward because you'll know, has the right problem been solved for this technology or is it just an advance that's sort of minor that probably isn't going to solve the bigger problems in the field? We also decided to lay out potential ways that a technology could make the world awesome, but again, not tell you exactly what we thought was gonna happen, and lay out potential ways the technology could make everything awful which we thought was really important because we don't think that gets dealt with enough in the literature on these new technologies. So tonight we're going to talk about cheap access to space. I'll cover that chapter. And Zach is going to talk a bit about programmable matter. These are two of the 10 chapters in our book. But while we were doing our research, we came across a lot of just fabulous, weird tidbits of information that really didn't relate to the 10 chapters, but we kind of couldn't help ourselves. We felt like we had to include them somehow. And so we added them as nota bene's in our book. Uh, This one we're not going to talk about tonight, but if you get our wonderful book, (laughs) you can read about a a fine fellow who thinks that it would be wonderful to 3D print messages in the middle of a stake, so you can cut into a stake and find a marriage proposal waiting inside. (laughs) Who, what woman wouldn't love something like that? Uh, So I'm going to talk about how it will end for all of humanity as my nota bene, because we thought we'd keep tonight light, Uh, and you're going to... I'm going to talk about uh, organ swapping markets, also to keep it light. Also to keep it light. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so without further ado, first we're going to talk about cheap access to space. So to get something to space costs $10,000 per pound. 
So that's really expensive. So as an American, I first want to calculate how much a McDonald's quarter pounder with cheese costs to get to space. That's about $2,500. Uh, Zach's a vegetarian, so he calculated that it costs about $10 to get an apple seed to space. So it's really expensive to get things up to space. So different groups are trying to figure out different ways to drive that cost down. Uh, one group that's pretty far ahead in this technology is SpaceX. And so essentially what they're doing is trying to cut down the cost of a pre-existing technology, which are rockets. So when you look at a rocket, a rocket by mass is about 80% propellant, 16% physical rocket, and 4% cargo. So only like only 4% of what is on a rocket is what you're actually trying to get to space. Uh, so, and the rest of it is just stuff that you need in order to get it up there. The expensive part of the process is the rocket itself. So the propellant, which is 80% by mass, is actually relatively cheap, but the rocket ex itself is really expensive. And so what we were doing before SpaceX came along is we were shooting rockets up into space, and then we were dropping the boosters, so the parts of the rocket that were like holding the propellant, we would drop them into the ocean. And so the reason it's so expensive or inexpensive relatively to take an airplane flight is because we don't like pull into the LA airport and then all jump out of the plane and let it fall into the ocean. <laughs> we recover it and use it over and over again. But that's not what we're doing with rockets. So what SpaceX is trying to do is add a little bit more propellant, which could cut down on the amount of cargo, uh, add a little bit more propellant and use that extra propellant to get the boosters to land on platforms that are out in the ocean. And they've been relatively successful at this. And Gwyn Shotwell, who's the president of SpaceX, estimates that they're going to be able to cut costs by 30% by using this method. So it's still going to be pretty expensive, but that's a pretty dramatic reduction. Okay, so that's a more near-term solution to the, to the problem of how to get to space more cheaply. We also came across... Uh, some more far-out sort of crazy ideas, including putting a rocket on essentially a pogo stick. So we were talking to Jason Derleth at NASA's uh, Advanced Institute... What is it? NASA Advanced Institute... NIAC, just say NIAC. NIAC, whatever. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, and so essentially the idea here is that you take a rocket and you, you use a lot of propellant at the part of the process where you're just kind of starting to try to get up off the ground. And so if you could essentially take the rocket and drop it onto a spring, that would sort of get the whole process started, and then you could save a little bit of propellant. And if you save even just a couple percents of propellant, you could almost double the amount of cargo that's held. Because remember, only 4% of cargo, uh, or of the stuff that's going up into space is cargo. So if you could use that to save 4% of propellant, you're doubling the amount of stuff you're getting to space. So we thought that was a, a pretty funny and awesome idea. Uh, there's another group of people who are working on what are called space planes. So the idea here is that when you're carrying propellant, you're carrying a mixture of fuel and oxidizer. So imagine you are making a campfire. Your campfire has fuel. That's the logs that you're going to set on fire. So then you have your spark. And then maybe you don't think about it, but there's oxygen in the atmosphere, and that's important for making that fire happen. So propellant includes oxidizer, and so you're carrying something that essentially surrounds the space plane as it goes up into space, so, or surrounds the rocket. So if a space plane can take the oxygen out of the surrounding atmosphere, 
and use that instead, then you could potentially cut way down on the amount of fuel that you need to bring, or propellant that you need to bring up into space. Uh, so for example, there's a group called uh, Reaction Engines. This is a British firm. They're working on a space plane called Skylon, and they have an engine called Sabre, which is the synthetic air-breathing rocket engine, which is a really awesome name. Uh, <laughs> and so that's one group that's working on a space plane as a way to get up into space. This is actually a very complicated thing to do, though, because the way that you get the oxygen out of the atmosphere changes depending on how fast your plane is going. So the configuration of the engine needs to change the faster the space plane goes. So it's very complicated, but it's somewhere in between uh, reusable rockets and our next technology, which is a space elevator. So space <laughs> elevators are probably super far out of the way, but here is the general idea. So you have Earth. There's a platform that's probably out in the middle of the ocean. There's a very long cable that's about 62,000 miles or about 100,000 kilometers long. Uh, and out here, you have some counterweight. In this case, it's a big honking rock. Uh, and along this cable, you have an elevator that climbs up the cable and can bring cargo up to space. The estimates are that if we can get a space elevator to work, it could cost about $250 per pound to get stuff up to space. So that's an amazing reduction in cost. But the big problem with space elevators is the middle part. So we don't know what to make that cable out of. So that cable needs to be very long, it needs to be very lightweight, and it needs to be incredibly strong. And for a long time, figuring out what that cable was going to be made of was a thing that really stalled the field, because they just couldn't figure out what would meet those demands. And then carbon nanotubes were discovered in a completely different and unrelated field, and that made the game go again. So carbon nanotubes could potentially be a strong enough tube that you could make the cable out of them. And a carbon nanotube is essentially just a configuration of carbon atoms that's sort of circular and is very, very strong. And so we were talking to, uh, to Ron Turner, also at NIAC, and he was saying that for a while it looked like these carbon nanotubes were going to just keep growing in length. So when we found, first discovered them, they were in very short segments, and then the segment started growing, and if you graphed out the length of the segment over time, it looked like one day we would get to the point where you could have a carbon nanotube that was 62,000 miles long. And then it stopped at about a foot and a half. And so that's where we are right now. It turns out that for most terrestrial uses of carbon nanotubes, a foot and a half pretty much does whatever it is that we need. And so until we have more terrestrial needs for longer carbon nanotubes, this technology might not become a reality. But there is another problem with carbon nanotubes, and it's kind of a big one. And the problem is that carbon nanotubes don't do so great when they get struck by lightning. <laughs> And the solution to this problem is really unsatisfying. So it turns out that there is a part in an ocean that has never recorded a lightning strike. <laughs> and so the plan is to hope that the past predicts the future and that this place where you put your space elevator never experiences a lightning strike. So presumably the platform that the space elevator leaves from could move a little. So maybe if a storm came through, you could move it over to the side, uh, but, but you have to hope that things like climate change don't result in lightning storms happening in places they haven't happened before, because uh, then the people on the elevator are going to have a particularly bad day. 
So they're still trying to figure out the middle part. Uh, and there, but, so there's a lot of concerns that you have to deal with if you're going to be going up to space more regularly. So one of these concerns is, uh, for example, with the reusable rockets, it's almost a skyscraper full of propellant when you get one of those things out into space. So if we can make that much cheaper, we're burning a ton of propellant much more regularly to get stuff out to space. And in this time where we're worried about global climate change, that's maybe not something that we should be taking too lightly. So there are some environmental concerns, and you can certainly work on more environmentally friendly propellants, but you can't get away from the environmental concern entirely. There's another concern uh, related to dropping gigantic objects on Earth. <laughs> so uh, at the moment, the people who go up to space are people who have had to go through very rigorous psychology tests. They've gone through tons of training. But when access to space becomes cheap and we start getting more people out there and maybe we start making space colonies, you now maybe have to start worrying a little bit more about the people who are out in space. So for example, if someone were out in space and were able to wrangle an asteroid, which is something we talk about in our asteroid mining chapter, if you flung that asteroid at the Earth, that could potentially be worse than any nuclear weapon we've ever detonated on, the, on this planet. So you have to start worrying about you know, people having the ultimate higher ground from the perspective of war. Uh, and you, know, you hope that the people who go up there could be trusted. Humanity's track record isn't amazing, so <laughs> there's something to be worried about there. Uh, another problem is space junk. So at the moment, we have a bunch of junk that's just sort of in orbit around our planet. And the more stuff we put up there, the more junk we might have up there. That's you know, aesthetically not particularly pleasing, but it also becomes a problem for the satellites that we need to operate up there. Because the more space junk we have, the more collisions you have, and the more likely you are to start losing satellites. So we'll need to be careful about the space junk problem. But it's also possible that when it's cheaper to get up to space, maybe we can come up with some nets to start netting some of our space junk. Maybe we can clean up after ourselves a bit. So there's a lot of reasons why it would be awesome and could potentially change the world, including things like making space tourism something that's accessible to more of us. Uh, I think personally, Zach and I probably don't want to go up in space because there's good evidence that even highly trained astronauts spend most of their first week in space puking. <laughs> and so I think if you're just going up for a day or two, you're probably spending a lot of time vomiting, which doesn't sound super enticing to me, but <laughs> it would be good for other people, I'm sure. Uh, and then additionally, if we can get up to space uh, more cheaply, then maybe we can start exploring, you know, we, you can imagine a Mars colony. You could imagine we could build spaceships out in space and go out and explore our galaxy uh, more thoroughly. So that would be Pretty darn exciting, I think. So now I'm going to pass the reins over yeah. to Zach to tell you about Programmable Matter. <clears throat> yeah, okay. So Programmable Matter. Uh, the idea with Programmable Matter is you have this cool thing called a computer. And what's really cool about it is it's unlike any other machine because it can run any program, unlike you know a glass of water, which can do one thing, which is hold water. A computer can run any program you can make for it that will fit in its memory. Uh, so there are these people who have this idea, that something like, could we do this for objects? Could you make objects that can reconfigure into any object or at least an array of different objects? Um, so there are a lot of different approaches to this. We're going to go through a few. There are a bunch more in the book. Uh, we're just doing a few of our favorites here. Um, oh, so there's this guy named Skylar Tibbetts uh, at uh, MIT, and he does what he calls 4D printing. And the idea is that the programming stage comes uh, at the point of a nozzle of a 3D printer. So you can print materials which you know in advance will behave in a certain way. So as an example, you can make a long straw which has 3D printed joints that change shape when they touch water. So you can have it 
turn into all sorts of conformations that you tell it to turn into in advance via the 3D printer, uh, kind of like proteins. Um, he did a cute version where you put it in water and it turns into MIT. Uh, but we thought it would be cooler if you could do like uh, spaghetti and then like creep people out. Uh, <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a, a bit more advanced version, you might say, called origami robots. And the thought there is, if you have a piece of paper, it can be folded into almost limitless shapes. Uh, so in a sense, a piece of um, paper could be quote-unquote programmable. The idea is you get this paper-like substance, um, and then it has hinges that are mechanized. It has little actuators so it can fold itself, and then it can lock. Uh, and it, maybe it has some, a couple other features. It might have some sensing ability. But the important thing is you can send it a signal and tell it to fold in a certain order to take on new configurations. And what's cool is unlike regular origami, not only can it fold up, but once it's folded up, it can do things. It can walk around uh, or swim. Um, so there's an advanced step from this, uh, which is... Uh, oh, You've got to talk about Daniela Roos's oh, gut I, yeah, thing. Sorry. Yeah, I skipped a little part. So this woman named Daniela Roos at MIT... Uh, who is working on an origami robot project. And it's this really cool thing where you'd make this little tiny origami robot and you'd put it in an ice capsule and you'd swallow it. And it goes into your gut. And the reason it's there is because, I don't know what the numbers are in the UK, but in the US, about 3,500 people a year swallow watch batteries and get them stuck. Uh, I guess I don't know how many people swallow them and it works out okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but at least 3,500 people. We think mostly children, but we don't know. Um, <laughs> But the idea is you swallow this little origami robot, it thaws, and then it can reshape itself into a sort of swimming configuration. And then it has a magnet so it can lock onto the watch battery and then kind of swim back out, uh, so to speak. Um, and uh, it's made of sausage casing in case anything goes wrong. Uh, so it just dissolves away. And hopefully it, it never any, at any point becomes cognizant of its own life. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's another version of this. Um, uh, well, there are a couple versions. One we like uh, is called Roombots. And if you want to visualize Roombots, it's something like between a cube and a sphere. It has a hemisphere, and it can kind of roll along like this. Uh, and it can sense a little bit. It has little grippers and little docking ports so they can dock with each other. And what's neat is you get a pile of, say, 30 of these, and they can configure into all sorts of shapes. They're kind of like walking pixels. Uh, and they can shape into things like tables. If you have a flat surface with grippers on it, it can move over the table surface and put it on top. Or if you had grippers up the wall, it could climb the wall and become a lamp or a chandelier. And their main idea is that you could use it for things like elder care, like people who might you know, not have a lot of mobility. They could say, you know, Roombots turn into a table and walk over to me and be a certain height. Um, but there's some other weird applications that we thought were really cool. So one idea is you could do a, a physical application of what's called a genetic algorithm. So there's this idea in, in computer science that's sometimes used where you... Uh, have a program and you say generate a bunch of versions of something uh, and then it generates them then you set some parameter that you want it to achieve and of these randomly generated versions one of them is the best at the thing you asked it to be and then based on that one you create a bunch of offspring of it uh, and the idea is you're kind of exploring the parameter space you're, you're finding solutions that maybe a human wouldn't think about by evolving them instead of going directly to them um, but with Roombots or something like it, you could implement this in the real world. So an example would be you could have, say, three piles of Roombots, and you could tell each of them, hey, get a random conformation, a random uh, uh, shape, and then go across the room as fast as you can with a random walking motion. And then after you've done this, you select the one that did the best, and you uh, have it 
uh, breed a new generation of three uh, that are based on the winning design. And you keep doing this over and over again, uh, getting faster and faster designs. And the cool thing is maybe eventually you arrive at something you wouldn't have even thought of. Uh, and you're implementing it in the real world instead of in a, in a simulation. So you're getting to use the physics of reality instead of a computer program. So that's really cool. Uh, you can imagine a more advanced version that uses maybe hundreds or thousands of these little machines to do this trick. Um, which leads to the, the most crazy version of, uh, of, uh, of, of this idea of programmable matter, which is some, sometimes literally called the bucket of stuff paradigm. Uh, and the idea is you have something like a bucket, or, or I guess it doesn't have to be a bucket, it could be something a little nicer maybe. Uh, and it's, it's filled with uh, little tiny versions of something like Roombots, little machines that aren't terribly smart but have an onboard power source, can dock with each other, can talk to each other maybe. Um, that are able to run some sort of universal algorithm to turn from uh, one shape to another. Uh, so you can imagine sort of practical uses of this. We, we like to say it's like the T-1000 from Terminator, only it's helping out uh, <coughs> instead of trying to kill you. Um, so, um, uh, but what's neat about this, so you might imagine one problem is, is just the physics um, of, of, of getting these things created, miniaturization, and also, you know, if you said bucket of stuff turned into a wrench, the question is whether you'd rather have that or just the wrench from your tool shed. Um, but still, it would be a really cool thing. Uh, but one of the interesting uh, things in its way might be the math. Uh, so the way we like to explain it is if you imagine you have a marching band, you know, just on a 2D uh, field, and um, you want them to turn from, say, a star into a circle. Uh, that's not too complicated. If each person knows in advance where to go, it's not too big of a trick. But if you want to have a generalized algorithm for them to go from uh, a star to whatever shape you pick, you know, say you want to, uh, you know, the letter H, um, that's, that's a little tougher because each person has to pick where they're going to go and then they all have to move ideally in the fastest path possible past each other to where they want to end up. So you can see that's a bit trickier. And that's just for 100 people on a two-dimensional surface. You can imagine if you go up to 1,000 people, it's more than 10 times harder because the number of possible relationships uh, between all these actors uh, you know, doesn't scale linearly. And you imagine with, with something like the bucket of stuff, now you're talking about a couple million agents and they're working in three dimensions. Uh, so there's a real problem with, with running that algorithm and running it fast because it's not going to be very practical if it takes a long time. Uh, so we have an example of something like this uh, in a project called Kilobots, uh, which is called Kilobots because there's 1,024 of them. If you want to visualize it, it's like little watch battery-sized creatures with three little legs, and they kind of wobble around to get where they're going. And so they were able to do this trick where they turned, uh, they did a couple versions of this, but one was they turned from a star to a wrench uh, using a universal algorithm with this simple sort of perimeter crawling algorithm, and that took six hours uh, to do. Um, so it's like if, if, if you're the T-1000 and you're coming to kill the humans, you can't ask them to wait for six hours uh, while you get things together. Uh, so that might just not be solvable. This might just not be something we can have because of the stupid math. It might take you know, the rest of the history of the universe to, uh, to uh, form into your wrench, in which case you're better off at the hardware store. Uh, <laughs> um, concern, so as Kelly said, in each chapter we talk about problems that might be created, even if we did have the sort of fullest, best version of this technology. Um, so one concern is privacy. If you have stuff that can be anything and it's hackable, uh, that's a little creepy. Uh, you know, anything includes things like cameras and transmitters uh, and, and maybe the ability to just subtly be in your house without you knowing. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's some, some, some weird legal questions like how does patenting work if you have a thing that can be anything? I don't know if, if there'll be laws about what, what you're allowed to do in your own home with your bucket of stuff. Um, <laughs> Uh, and related to that, you know, we have this concern we're already talking about with 3D printers, which is, what are the rules about 3D printing a gun? 
um, you know, in your own home. You know, in the U.S. where we have plenty of guns, there's still a few laws about what type of gun you can have. But if you can just 3D print it on a machine at home, it becomes a weird policing issue. This, is, this has come up. I think San Francisco tried to ban your ability to present to 3D print certain shapes of object, which is basically impossible. Um, and if you have a situation where you have a bucket of stuff or even something kind of similar, it becomes impossible to ban certain types of objects. So that's perhaps a little creepy. Um, <laughs> well, well, so the, yeah, there's this legal issue where if you have a substance that, um, let's say, reconfigures in response to circumstance, which everyone you know, agrees, no, no one has a problem with the way it reconfigures, but if it, it is doing what it's programmed to do and it does something illegal, there's this question of who is to blame. Uh, and so obviously you, you can't sue poly, polyoxymethylene glycol. <laughs> um, you have to um, sue maybe the manufacturer. This is a problem we're already talking about in, in the realm of autonomous vehicles. Um, but, but as uh, Skylar Tibbetts said, the, the general problem is when you start offloading human autonomy to machines, um, weird questions about who's to blame for anything start arising. Uh, so that's, that's something we're going to have to figure out. Um, how it would change the world. There are a lot of cool ways. Um, there, there, there's some practical things. Uh, there's a really cool project called Hygroscope, uh, which is more in the realm of what we call 4D printing, uh, where you program these sort of wooden pores into a building so that they respond a certain way to humidity, so the humidity increases, or depending on what setting you have, but imagine humidity increases and they kind of open out to achieve the climate you want inside the building. If you could program them in advance, one, it's just really cool. It looks like there's this giant alien with pores. Um, but also just, you know, it, it could be a low energy way to, to regulate climate, a little more like what animals do uh, with their bodies and plants too. Um, uh, uh, in terms of the uh, origami bots, we talked earlier about how you might swim into someone's gut and grab a watch battery. Um, that's with, with a, a, um, an object that's maybe two by two centimeters. You can imagine a future where these things are really, really miniaturized and then they can be used to deliver drugs to specific places in the body. That could be really cool uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, among them, you know, there are a lot of drugs where you take, a, say, a pill to fix something like inflammation, but maybe you only have inflammation like in your thumb. It'd be really cool if there was some way to deliver it directly uh, to the, the, the spot that's a problem, especially if it's internal to your body and hard to reach. Um, that could be a really cool, too, for um, drugs that have bad side effects you could use a much more minimal dosage. Um, so that would be really neat. Uh, and then one idea that we thought would be really cool is if you could go to Ikea and just come home and it would have a shelf that built itself. Uh, that would save like 400 trillion hours a year. Um, and that's, that's programmable matter. Uh, all right, so how is it going to end for all of humanity? <laughs> so we had a lot of opportunities to read about robots during the course of this research. And three robots uh, ended up being really exciting to us. Uh, and they, we thought, told us some, or gave us some interesting insights into interactions between robots and humans. So the first robot is called Promobot. Uh, this is a Russian robot that can recognize faces, and the job of this robot is to uh, help the elderly and just to sort of be a helpful robot that hangs out and does the kinds of things that you need it to do. But it turns out that this robot pretty quickly got tired of its life, figured out how to use the door, and started escaping. <laughs> And so there were at least two instances where this robot managed to escape, and once it didn't just escape, it escaped and then ran out of power in the middle of the road and stopped traffic. So that's particularly not useful. So that's the first robot. The second robot is named Gaia, and Gaia was made by a Harvard undergraduate student named Serena Booth, and Serena was interested in figuring out the extent to which undergrads would be willing to grant robots access to the dorms. There were at least three reasons why they should not have let a robot into their dorms. Uh, the first is that 
Human tourists uh, apparently really like taking photos of the Harvard dorms. And so they'll sneak in and take photos of dorm rooms, and this seems very creepy, but apparently this is a, a big problem that they have at Harvard dorms. So that's one reason you might not want to let a robot in in case it's carrying video equipment. Uh, second, there had recently been bomb threats, and so they had I've, all the undergrads had received an email saying, don't let anyone in the dorms, there have been bomb threats. Uh, and third, there had recently been a string of thefts. So many reasons why undergraduates shouldn't be letting humans in but would they generalize this risk to robots? So Serena wanted to know the answer to that question, so she made a robot that to me looks like an entertainment system that's like about this high, and she would remotely operate it with like a joystick, and presumably people couldn't see that she was operating it from afar, and she had this robot named Gaia go up to undergrads who were by themselves and ask the undergrad if they would let the robot in the dorm. And when the robot approached lone individuals, 19% of the time, they let the robot in. So your, your odds are pretty good that the potentially bomb-carrying robot doesn't get let in when there's just one undergrad. But it turns out when there were groups of undergrads, 71% of the time, they let the robot in. So if there's any robots in the audience, uh, tip, we're real dumb in groups. Uh, but it turns out we're even dumber when, robot, or when cookies are involved. So what happened next was she put a box from a fancy cookie store on top of this robot, and she filled the box with cheap snickerdoodles from a local grocery store, so not even good cookies, and she had the robot approach individuals. And remember, individuals were only letting the robot in 19% of the time. When the robot was carrying cookies, it was let in 76% of the time. <laughs> So if you've got cookies, humans are willing to grant you access to the most sacred of our living spaces. <laughs> the final robot uh, is an emergency robot that was made by Paul Robinette, who at the time was working on his PhD at Georgia Institute of Technology. And essentially what this robot did was it guided undergraduates to a room where they were supposed to take a survey. And the undergrads were told that this was an emergency robot, so a robot that you follow in cases of emergency. And they followed the robot into a room where they started filling out a survey. And then the cruel researchers started blowing smoke into the hallway, which set off a fire alarm. And then they stopped to see what the undergrads would do. So now remember, these undergrads had just come into this building through a door that they knew how to get to. So they knew how to get out of this building. But when the smoke alarm went off, almost all the undergrads started following the robot. And at first, that's a little surprising because they, they knew how to get out on their own. But it's really surprising when you watch the video because this robot was incredibly slow. And so you watch the undergrads following the robot and they're taking smaller steps so they don't get too far ahead of the robot. And they know how to get out of the building. So uh, Paul then decided to up the ante a little bit and he had the robot instead of taking the undergrads to the correct survey room, first it went to the wrong room, circled the room, and then brought them to the survey room. And then they put the smoke in the room, and still a bunch of undergrads followed the robot out in the, emer in the emergency situation after the robot had first brought them to the wrong spot. And again, they know how to get out. So then Paul upped the ante again, uh, and this time he had the robot first go into a corner and motion the surveys in here. And this is just a, a corner. And the, the experimenters come out and say, oh, we're sorry, the robot's kind of broken right now. Uh, this is the right room for the survey. So they bring the robot and the undergrad into a room for the survey. They blow the smoke in, and still some of the undergrads follow the robot. 
And then the final cruel thing that they did to these undergrads was they had the robot in this situation go to a room where the lights were shut off, there was no exit sign, and the room was blocked by a couch. <laughs> and two undergrads had to be retrieved because <laughs> they were apparently just waiting for their death. <laughs> and another two eventually went out on their own, so not all of them uh, were waiting, but enough of them to make you a little bit nervous. So in America, these are our best and brightest. Uh, maybe you would all fare better, but in the United States, there's reason to be worried. Uh, and so we were, we were telling this story to our friend Gary, and Gary pointed out a story that wasn't in our book. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Philadelphia, but it's a city in the United States, uh, and a robot was hitchhiking through Philadelphia, and the people of Philadelphia beat the heck out of this robot. <laughs> so there are some lessons. Uh, the lessons are, uh, from Promobot, we learned that robots pretty quickly get tired of us and don't want to serve us anymore. Uh, from Gaia, we learned that we're really easy to trick, especially in groups or with cookies. Uh, and from Paul Robinette's robot, we learned that even in emergency situations, we'll follow robots to our doom. Uh, but if the robot apocalypse, apocalypse comes, apparently you're safe in Philadelphia because they just don't trust robots yes. there. So those are our robot stories. Yes. Uh, to be clear about Philadelphia, we don't know that they knew it was a robot. They could have just been beating things to death yeah, and, okay, it, yeah. and just got lucky. Having been to Philly, yeah. you, you might be right about that. Um, so we're going to close by inflicting some social science on you. Uh, we're going to talk about something called organ swapping markets, but to preface it, uh, I want to talk about, um, get you to think a little more deeply about how awesome money is um, as a system, not as a thing you can have, although there's that. Um, so when you go to get a coffee, you don't have to trade for coffee. You just say, there's this stuff called money. We agree that you can, you know, I can give you this bill that's got Winston Churchill looking grumpy on it, and you can take that anywhere else, and they'll give you stuff for it. If you didn't have that, Suppose you were, say, a potato farmer. What you'd have to do is come in and say, hey, I have a bunch of potatoes. Can I get one cappuccino for these potatoes? And there are a couple of reasons this is a bad system. Uh, one, you'd have to find some agreed upon amount, which might be tricky. But two, probably they don't want your potatoes at the coffee shop. Uh, and so what we've done is we've created this cool system called money. <clears throat> I mean, you can imagine if we didn't have money somehow, if you erased money from the universe, there are a couple ways you could fix this uh, with computers, right? So what you could do is before you go into town as a potato farmer, you consult your app and say, which baristas are prepared to trade 40 potatoes for one cappuccino? Uh, and then you could go there, and then you could make your deal. Um, the problem is you might get into a situation where nobody wants your potatoes. Uh, and then what you'd have to do uh, is create a cycle of three people. So you imagine now you have to introduce a person who, say, does haircuts, who wants potatoes. So you say, I'll give potatoes to the haircut person. The haircut person cuts the barista's hair uh, because you found in the app that they need a haircut. And then the barista gives you the coffee. So now you can make that exchange. And actually, if you had a complicated enough app, you could probably get just about anything you want if you had a sufficiently large city like London. Uh, you could find enough of these cycles. They're all weird coincidences. But in a city this big, there are a lot of weird coincidences probably every day. Um, so what does this have to do with organ swapping? Uh, well, it turns out there are some markets uh, where we don't allow money. <clears throat> and Alvin Roth, who's the guy we're mostly working off of for this section in the book, uh, talks about uh, this idea he calls repugnance, uh, which I guess was a novel concept in economics. Uh, but there's certain... <laughs> 
there, there are certain transactions uh, that we just don't uh, generally think are cool um, to use money for. So, you know, you can adopt a baby, you can't buy a baby, or you're not supposed to. Uh, you can, um, all sorts of things having to do with romance, you're not supposed to involve money. You can't say, hey, you're more attractive than me, can we agree that I'll pay you $1,000 a month and we'll get married? Um, that might be implicit in some relationships, I don't know. Uh, but, you're <laughs> but you're not supposed to. Uh, and another market that works this way is organs. You can't go to someone and say, hey, I'm rich, give me your kidney. Or at least in most places you can't. Um, there are some places. They're, they're in Iran, there's an organ market. In China and a number of other countries, there's a large black market for organs, we understand. Uh, but in most of the West, you cannot uh, make this transaction. Uh, so um, this brings up something called matching markets. Uh, so what's interesting with organs is you can't point at someone and say, gimme, but you can give one, and you can also make a trade. Uh, it's kind of, in a weird way, it's kind of like the way love works. In love, you need a matching market. You can't introduce money, so you have to find the perfect person where you have uh, you know, an equal transaction, so to speak. Um, you agree to certain things you're going to provide each other, and then you can get together, and you, you can't... Uh, um, try to adjust your preference by introducing money. Uh, so um, the idea with an organ matching market, so the idea is you have this situation where imagine you have uh, this couple on the left and there's one person who has two functional organs and one person who needs one and they have this problem where the functional organ person can't donate, oh we're doing kidneys in this case, um, they, they're incompatible. And then meanwhile you have a second couple that has the exact same problem uh, and, and in a double coincidence, in a weird situation, uh, each is compatible with the other. Uh, so it's kind of like we described earlier, um, it's an uncommon situation with a big enough pool of people. You know, in the US we have 120,000 people in the pool. Uh, you're going to find a lot of double coincidences or you're going to find cycles like I described earlier where you have three people, four people. The highest, uh, according to Alvin Roth, they'd done was five people. Um, and, and, and by the way, the cool thing with a cycle is, um, is, is not just that it's a lot of people, but the thing to note is that everyone in a cycle gets something and gives something. Um, so what's nice about this is it gets around our repugnance to, to bringing money into organs. There's just this agreement between people. It's sort of morally neutral. And you end up with this situation where you get two people off the organ list without someone having to uh, die to donate organs or anything like that. Um, but uh, let me go to the next slide. So there's this, um, there's this problem that arises, uh, which is suppose you have a cycle of five people. Uh, you have to do the surgery simultaneously between all five people. Why? Because uh, there's a risk that someone will renege partway through. Uh, and I should say, the, the, some of that is, is it's not just someone getting scared. It could be a health reason. But there is this risk that you, say, do two parts of the cycle and then someone says no. Um, so that's a problem. There's, there's a cool solution to it if you have a very rare person, like what we call Saintly Sally in the book, uh, there, these people exist. There are a small number of people who are willing to altruistically give an organ into the system. Um, and that's, that's existed for a long time, and it's great. But when you have a swapping market, you can do something really cool. So what Sally does is she says, I will give an organ to someone in a couple if uh, the um, couple agrees to pass a kidney on. Um, and so what's cool about that, like in this arrangement, is because of what Sally does, uh, two people get off the list. Um, and you also solve the reneging problem because uh, suppose someone bails, uh, uh, it's not great. Um, uh, <laughs> Andy's kind of a jerk maybe or, or had a health problem, you know. Um, but, but you see that the second couple is no worse off than they were before the process started. And what's really cool is you can actually set up these really long chains once you get going. You basically get a chain going until something goes wrong. <clears throat> um, 
<laughs> I couldn't think of a name. Um, <laughs> uh, but so the longest chain that, that, that we were told ever existed was 70 people, which is really cool. So it's like Sally gives one organ, 70 people get off the list. That's a substantial percent of the entire list thanks to one good person, which is cool too because if you're someone like Sally, this is probably an extra incentive to you because you're thinking, oh, I'm not just helping one person. I'm helping potentially dozens and dozens. Uh, just one thing we wanted to talk about. This is something Alvin Roth proposed. So this, this system is obviously cool because you're, um, you're not having to use money, but lots more people are getting uh, organs. Uh, Alvin Roth, being an economist, wanted to talk about what if we could set up an, an organ market that's not repugnant? That is to say, one where money is involved, but we're okay with it. And probably if everyone here is like most people, you'd say, no, there's no such thing. Um, and the, way Alvin, the thing Alvin Roth pointed out that I thought was very important to think about is you don't have to have this dichotomy of the system we have now where there is no money involved and, and this other universe where we're like in Ayn Rand world and it's just hyper-capitalism and it's awful. So a system he proposed, or we're, we're, we're going to talk about an example based on some of his proposals. So imagine this. In the U.S. right now, if you want to keep someone on dialysis for the rest of their life, whether they get... Um, the organ they need or they die, costs something like uh, 700,000 uh, pounds. So that's a lot of money to work with. I'm sorry, something like a million pounds, actually. It's more like a million pounds. Uh, and so that means you have a lot of money to work with if you want to fiddle with the system. So one idea is you say, hey, any citizen can donate, say, a kidney, and they will get 750,000 pounds. And they'll get top of the list if they ever need a, a kidney themselves. Uh, and the important thing is, it's not going to be a situation where a rich person says, you give me your kidney. When someone donates, they donate to the system, and then whoever is already on top of the list uh, just gets an organ faster. Um, so what's interesting, to that about, uh, interesting about that to us is it's like, you've just done a little market restructuring, and suddenly it starts to seem a little less creepy. And the other thing, even if that still sounds a little creepy to you, you have to remember how many people are on the list. We looked up, uh, according to the NHS numbers in the UK, something like 500 people die every year on the list. Um, and it actually might be a little higher because some people, when they're, they, they get to where they're too ill to receive one and then they get taken off the list, but they don't count. Um, so you have to weigh that against whatever revulsion you have to that system. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not advocating for one system or another, but it's interesting to think, um, you know, we have this scarce resource of organs. We talk in the book about maybe getting to where we could print new organs and it would solve the problem entirely. But in the meantime, we should think about how we're going to allocate scarce resources and organs are one of the scarcest. And, and so we have this system in the U.S., but it doesn't exist here. It's not here yet, yeah. But. So uh, those, are, those are two of the chapters, a brief overview of two of the chapters and two of the notabenes. What are the 10 technologies we talk about in the book? Oh, this is always a challenge. I always forget one. Um, okay, so the book, we have 10 technologies. That's uh, cheap access to space, asteroid mining, fusion power, bioprinting, synthetic biology, precision medicine. Oh, wow. Um, Brain-computer interfaces, robotic construction of buildings. Oh, I'm short too now. That's embarrassing. Oh, programmable matter. Augmented reality. Yeah, okay. we did it. All right. <laughs> Took me a second too. <laughs> so those are the technologies we can we can talk about. Um, so if you have any questions about any of those, or about comics, or Kelly's an expert in parasites, incidentally, uh, <laughs> <laughs> particularly parasites that manipulate host behavior. <laughs> Particularly so you Hufflepuff Californians. Yes. And, and you're all going to love it. Yes. Uh, and on that note, we would love to take your questions. Is there any point in the space elevator? Because there's already too much crap up there. Oh, so that's, that's a good question that leads me to uh, something I maybe should have mentioned during the talk, which is, okay, so what happens if the space elevator breaks? 
Uh, so yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of crap up there, and a lot of stuff that is really important for you know national security and for for communications and blah blah blah. Uh, so putting more stuff up there is arguably not a great idea. Probably going to happen anyway. Maybe if we could get our you don't think it's going to happen anyway? No, I don't. Uh, no oh. idea, or no, you don't. No, I don't think it's going to happen because there's two there's the way that stuff uh, fractures in space mm -hmm. means that we're basically going to have this shell of stuff that's going to break anything that tries to get out into space anyway. And so we're going to end up in oh. a shell. So, so that's already becoming a problem. You could potentially put stuff up there to clean some of the junk that's not used anymore out. And if you have access to a space elevator, maybe it would be easy to make a junk collecting net or something like that. So you, you could work on that problem. I agree <laughs> it's a problem, and it's a problem that's getting worse. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for me to imagine that humans would say, oh, this is, we should stop, and would then stop. But... Uh, but it would yeah. be nice. Do you have something to add to that? Yeah, well, a total dorky physics thing, but most of the stuff that you're describing is moving in the same direction. So it's, it's, it's potentially that you, that you could make a cleaner that would lock speed just right to, say, knock it down or knock it away or even capture it. There's actually an idea that was proposed by one uh, group we read. They're, they're, uh, they were interested in ballistic methods, I think, for getting stuff to space. Um, there's a paradigm, there's a danger of the space elevator or something like it, which is the moment one country has the technology, it's this huge military advantage, right? So one idea for how you might defend against that, if, if you had no choice if one country was going to dominate the world, it's very easy to throw a bunch of junk into space. It would be the sort of ultimate way, because you could make it so nobody could go to space ever again. Um, so it is, it is a possibility. You've got to imagine it's like a last-ditch effort. It's like the worst outcome for humanity, but might be good from the perspective of a particular nation. Uh, so hopefully it doesn't get to that. One of the reasons, so Kelly described earlier that the space elevator base is probably at sea. One of the reasons you might do that is just to ensure that it's an international agreement that it's there. Um, in an ideal world, everybody should have some sort of access to it because it's such a terrifying military advantage. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll just end up in that paradigm where there's so much junk in space, uh, we're, we're in trouble. Of course, it might fix climate change if you block the sun, so that's something. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens if you snip the space elevator? Yes. So if you snip the space elevator, that giant rock that acts as a counterweight kind of flies off and becomes a gigantic piece of space debris, uh, maybe knocking all the other satellites out, and then we don't have to worry no, about that anymore. Straight out. Oh, it would go straight out. That's yeah. right, yes, yeah. straight up. Uh, and then the elevator and the cord would fall down. That's right. And they yeah. could be knocking out on the satellites. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they could be knocking out some of the satellites. They wouldn't knock them all out, but anything that it fell through in that space could get hit. Uh, but the elevator and the cord would fall back down to Earth. And for a variety of different reasons, the cord would probably flap around and burn up and mostly not cause yeah. trouble on its way down. But the people on the elevator would have a really bad day. <laughs> yes. On the topic of uh, the bucket of stuff, do you think, think there will be a way... If it was ever, you know, created, could it affect the economy, you know, ch changing something into something a lot more expensive? Sure. Do you want to yeah. take that one? Yeah, you know, it's funny about that. I think we talked to an economist at one point, and it might actually lower GDP, uh, because GDP is kind of a measurement of everything that's happening in the economy. And if you don't need to buy anything anymore, uh, it looks on paper like we're all poorer. Uh, so, so that's possible. Um, I mean, to be honest... There's probably a lot of times when you'd rather just have the, the, the wrench or the hammer than uh, try to convince nanobots to do it. Uh, it's probably the case that if this ever is applicable, it's probably going to be in some weird environment where you, it's very expensive to have anything like in space or a hazardous environment or a war zone. It, it, it probably will never be the case outside of novelties that it's sort of in general use, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for writing SNBC. Huge fan. Oh, thank uh, you. And second of all, I was going to ask, um, 
During the course of writing this book, with all the disciplines you spoke to, so engineers, roboticists, biologists, and so on, who tended to be the most skeptical and conservative in their estimates of when this technology was going to arrive and who was crazy pie in the sky, five years, we're going to have everything? Oh, I just now found the voice that was Yeah, talking. I was like, oh my uh, God. Uh, do you want to... Uh, sure. So I, I did the interviews, yeah. uh, and to be honest, we didn't ask people how long, for the most part, we didn't ask people how long we thought it was going to take, because we just weren't planning on addressing that in the book. Um, but the one thing that really surprised me that people hadn't thought about was the ethical implications of these technologies. Uh, so almost every scientist or engineer that I talked to, my, you know, my last question was, how is the thing that you're working on potentially going to destroy everything? <laughs> and most of them were like, I don't know. Uh, and, and I thought that, at first I thought, well, you guys are just, and gals, are just lying to me because you don't want me to put bad stuff about your technology in the book. But I really don't think that they were all playing me. I really think that they hadn't thought about it because a couple mm -hmm. of them ended up being friends of mine who I interviewed and I'd be like, well, what are the negative implications? And they're like, I mean, there are bioethicists, there are other people who will think about that. <laughs> but you are the person who's making this tool that humanity could have. And so it seems like you should a couple times have some beers and think about it. And, but anyway, it seems like that's not happening uh, or it's not happening and it's not being shared with the public. And that kind of surprised me and it made it all the more important, we thought, that we get the concern section in the book. Because some of these technologies do have pretty negative implications that society is going to have to deal with when we decide if these technologies are going to be part of our everyday lives if they ever pan out. So I didn't answer your question, but I answered something else. <laughs> Thanks for your question. <laughs> Uh, if you look around this room um, and sort of who reads your comics, and that kind of stuff, it's a, a lot, probably a large amount of younger people, uh, young professionals, people who are not in mm -hmm. school or just coming out of school. Have you addressed in your book at all or in your follow-up comics and online things what kind of topics these people should be looking at to get into these fields, to develop these technologies? Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter who's looking at it at the moment. They're, yeah. they're going to be dead before it's around. Most of the <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's important to get the younger generation into it, more scientists, more engineers. So how have you addressed that? Oh, yeah, so it's funny, actually, our very original proposal was to do something more like that. Was to, we were going to talk about, like, 50 technologies and just do a quick overview for, for young people. How are you going to get in this field? And one of the things we originally included, which is not in this final book, was a section that was something like that. If you want to get into this field, what do the professionals say you need to start learning? And the problem became, in almost all cases, except one that's kind of funny, almost every case was math. Learn more math, learn more math, learn more math. So that's, that's the answer. Like, if you want to be part of an important scientific revolution, learn to program and learn to do math. Uh, that's, that's unfortunately the most expedient answer. Sorry. Um, however, the funny one was uh, we were talking to people about asteroid mining, and they gave the one anomalous answer, which was, uh, our, it was Martin Elvis, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Was, um, and Daniel Faber. And Daniel Faber. Both, yeah, two different people who, who aren't in the same, like, university or whatever. Uh, both said the same thing, which is we need more lawyers uh, for space. Um, no, it's true, though. It, it, there's this real problem, which is um, there's this thing called outer space, which is actually the rest of the universe, and there's not really an, an agreed-upon framework. There's this one thing called the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which is very pretty. It's very Kennedy-ish. It, it literally says we'll use space, which, is, again, is everywhere but here for the benefit of humanity, um, which we haven't done so well with down here, uh, but supposedly we're going to do it with the rest of the universe. So we, we think it's probably not tenable as different countries get into space more. Um, and, well, in particular, in the United States, there's evidence that that's not going to be what <laughs> happens when we get up there because we've already... I forget the name of this act, but it passed through our Congress uh, and... The point of the act is to say that American citizens 
can claim things. So that you can't say this belongs to the United States, but you can say this asteroid belongs to Zach Wiener because I got here and I'm going to mine it and I'm going to sell it. And so we're already in the United States sort of pushing things in the direction of like, yeah. well, maybe you can own some stuff. Uh, and so it's hard, hard to know what's going to happen when more countries get up into space more often, how that's going to pan out and whether or not people are going to put up with the United yeah. States doing stuff like that. Um, <laughs> I think that law is actually, it's an acronym. It's called asteroids. It's like a tortured, horrible acronym. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but anyway, so, so we, we, we are hoping actually that for all of these technologies, some young people get excited yeah. about one of the problems that need to get solved and maybe spend their career researching that or something related. That was one of the things we were excited about when we started the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then it morphed into what it is now, which is hopefully still inspirational in some way. <laughs> so, if so, sci so scientists seem not so if scientists seem not to consider the ethics or the results of what they are doing. Why, why does this happen? Is it because like scientists view science as value neutral? Because saying science is value neutral seems to be absurd, as it's controlled by commercial interests, government interests, mm -hmm. and academic interests. So it's going to naturally bend in directions that benefit those, and not those which would necessarily benefit humanity. Can I answer that, even though I just talked for a million yeah. years? Go okay, so we try to switch off. But so, so as someone who's in academia, my, my guess at what's happening is that a professor who's working on a project like this uh, has a bunch of grad students that they need to mentor, they have a bunch of classes they need to teach. They already also need to be an, experts on, an expert on something like statistics, uh, on top of it being an expert in anything that they need to make their technology work. Uh, and then they also have to be on various committees and blah, blah, blah. And so there's a reason that there are people who, for their entire career, are ethicists. Uh, or economists, we also encountered a lot of situations where people hadn't thought through the economic implications, and in at least one of those situations, it may have killed the technology the person was working on. Uh, so my guess is that people specialize so much that they just figure, I don't have time, that, that's something else. My job is to make this happen, and then society can figure it out. Uh, I think that is the wrong approach, uh, especially if you're giving a dangerous tool to everyone. I think you should think through it. Hmm. But my guess is just that people feel sort of overworked already and like they've done too many things and that there are experts in those areas will let them deal with it. Um, but I think if you don't want to deal with it, then you should maybe walk across the hall to like the philosophy department and ask them what they think and, you know, get some input on it or something. Mm -hmm. But do you have more to add? There's to only that? one thing to add there, just as, as a way to think about that question, there was, and this is going to sound like a joke, but it's true. There was a program written that could determine, I think with 90% accuracy, whether you were gay or not. Um, and so this was like, wow, what, what a cool finding that you could just look at someone's phenotype and make a determine about sexual orientation. But the scientists hadn't thought about this, but, but it was pointed out very quickly by the gay community that, well, there are a lot of people who are in the closet. Um, and this could be used in a very negative way. Um, so, like, even stuff that might at first glance seem to, at least seem to me, that seemed like just a neat thing, is not value neutral to every community. Uh, so, that, I, I guess that argues for more diversity in science, which we're not super great at yet. More diversity yeah. in science and finding someone who's willing, who, like, you know, maybe studies society and could think through right, it. Right, yeah, true. So, more collaboration or yeah. a more integrative approach to these things. But it did surprise us. Oh, sorry. Sorry, he's in charge of questions. Yeah. I keep trying to take control. I have a space travel question. Um, it's not just that um, if you get it a lot cheaper, obviously, that space travel will be more accessible. But I think 
at the current speed, there isn't that many places you can get to. So it's part of what you were looking at also, like it doesn't have to be FTL, like sort of <laughs> not talking warp speed necessarily, but yeah. is, there, is there any technology or sort of what's going on in the sense of like, are we getting faster too? Because otherwise we can right. literally get to the moon and the only other option is like um, uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt sort of. Spaceship for 30 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we did not do a chapter on space propulsion. Uh, it, it's something we're, we're, at least I'm a little geeky about. So the, the, the essential issue with space propulsion um, is uh, something like fuel density. Uh, but that actually ties into space launch, right? So, um, so for people who don't know, the way you usually get a, around space is like by using a lot of tricks. You use local gravity to kind of slingshot you. Um, along your course, there's an idea called an Aldrin cycler that was proposed by Buzz Aldrin, and the idea there, there's some orbit that gets you from Mars back to here for free from an energy perspective, but it takes about two years. Um, as opposed to if you had some sort of machine that was accelerating you constantly in space, you get to Mars in a few days. Um, <clears throat> so there are a couple of proposals. This is not in our book, but there are a couple of cool proposals. You probably want something nuclear, mainly because nuclear stuff tends to be very energy dense. You don't want to use some sort of something like rocket fuel. Because um, it's just going to be huge, it's going to cost a lot to launch, and you just there's just you won't have enough to get anywhere cool quickly. If you have a fusion reactor, great, um, because you've got extreme energy density, and in, and potentially you can pick up fuel from just flying around because there's hydrogen in space. Uh, it's not it's, it's pretty rarefied, but I don't know. Maybe you go closer to the sun to pick up more fuel. Uh, more likely in in the near-ish future, you'd want something like a nuclear fission reactor, basically a nuclear power plant on your ship. Uh, you can imagine why people might frown on boosting that to space. Um, there have actually been at least one incident. You wanted to tell this story? So this is the story of Cosmos, is it 954? I think 594, I don't know. Cosmos number something. <laughs> uh, and so this was a Russian satellite that was powered uh, by nuclear power, and it was off in orbit, and the United States noticed that it wasn't orbiting the way it was supposed to, and at some point it was going to fall, uh, and they couldn't figure out if it was going to fall in the U.S. or in Canada. But eventually... Uh, sorry, and they contacted the Russian government and said, hey, guys, looks, <laughs> looks like maybe there's going to be a nuclear sort of disaster thing going on. Can you tell us, like, the, you know, what you know about this? And they were like, mm, no, <laughs> nope. And so they didn't say anything. And then it landed in a remote part of Canada. Landed. Yeah. It crash landed <laughs> yes. in a remote part of Canada, and it spread nuclear waste all over. And the Canadian and the United States government spent a lot of money cleaning it up. I don't remember the number right now. Uh, and the Canadian government contacted the Russian government and was like, so you owe us all of this money to clean up our, our land that you made radioactive. And the Russian government was essentially like, we'll go halfsies. Yeah. And, and they paid for half of it. And that was, that was all they paid for. And so anyway... Yeah. Uh, well, just what so, I love about that is it's like, we didn't do it, but we'll pay for half of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that was a fun story. Um, but... Yeah, but yeah, mostly we're focused on space launch. Uh, we'd love to do a sequel someday, which we talk about space propulsion. Really quick, there's a really cool version of it where essentially what you do is you have a nuclear reactor in your spaceship, and at the back of the spaceship you have these disks that are spinning very, very quickly. And the reason you have that is you have your nuclear reactor heat the edge of the disk to a very, very high temperature, and then the disk is designed so it throws chunks of itself, little tiny bits, but, but over time it adds up out the back of the ship. And, you know, the rocket equation tells you, I'll probably make some physicists cry, but essentially what it says is the faster you throw stuff out the back, uh, the faster you go. And so the, the idea is you use the reactor just to get this extreme temperature, and then you can shoot stuff out the back, and then you can fly around with space 
with a pretty high energy density system for your propulsion. So maybe someday something like that, but it's not it's not part of the book, so I haven't researched it thoroughly. We yeah. we did talk about that between ourselves and decided that was kind of a totally different chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just following up on that bucket of stuff, thinking about um, <laughs> Chernobyl, for instance, um, one thing I could envisage is that you put your bucket of stuff to form a plug in the pipe that has mm. got the nasty stuff in. Is, do you think there is something like that that would have a... Um, that would be a reasonably circumscribed simple task where there would be a role for... Yeah, uh, the, the, there's something similar to that we discussed in the book. So one, one thing we didn't talk about in Programming Ladder here, but which is in the book, is what's called swarm robotics. And so the essential idea there is you have some relatively small number of robots, and they might be big ones, like, say, 10 to 20 in a swarm. And they're proposed as a way, for, well, for all sorts of reasons, you might want these, uh, well, at least maybe, maybe just me. But, um, but one use for them is disaster areas. The idea is you have 20 robots, you send them in to something like Chernobyl, say, and what's nice about having 20 is one, if one breaks down, you've got the rest of them. But also, if, if you design them a certain way, they can reconfigure together uh, to navigate obstacles and that sort of thing. Uh, so, so like one uh, set we talked about, I think it was called Swarm Morph. And so they did this cool thing where you can imagine you have a robot that's this big, it gets to a hole like this, it doesn't know how to cross. Assume, assume the hole goes in both directions. But... Um, so it had a neat algorithm where it would stop, and it would signal to the other robots, hey, I'm encountering an obstacle I can't personally get over. And then it would signal, please dock with me. And so these robots that didn't have a complicated onboard program would see that dock with me signal. They would line up into a train, and then they could cross. Uh, and so there are a number of different algorithms like this for these reconfigurable swarms. So something like that might be really cool for a disaster area. Um, I mean, there's obviously a problem for robots experiencing radiation, for humans too, of course. Um, but, but yeah, that's a possibility. Uh, or you could imagine the, uh, like a bucket of stuff that isn't completely universal, but could be like the hardware set, where it knows how to make <laughs> 10 different tools, or it knows how to like fix any drain, yeah. or drain plugging issue or something like that. So maybe it can't be anything, but you can give it... 10 or 20 different tools that it could make uh, pretty quickly, and yeah, so maybe that would be a solvable algorithm. Yeah. Um, so you've got a chapter about robots, and you've got a chapter about biology. What about the mixes of everything? Like, if we can't print real organs, or if we can't have enough, why don't we replace them with, you know, robotic parts? At which point, like, probably during your research, you also found really interesting things that mixes every single chapter of your book at the same time, like AI <laughs> plus virtual reality plus robotic parts. I mean. Yeah, so uh, we actually, we interviewed a guy named Gabor Forgotch, uh, and we were talking to him about bioprinting. So the idea with bioprinting, for anyone who doesn't know, is that you get uh, a 3D printer that instead of printing with like extruded plastics, which I think is how we're most familiar with 3D printers right now, is that it prints with human cells. So you would collect some cells from yourself, grow them up into large numbers, and then you would extrude them uh, and essentially print a, lever, a liver, for example, from the bottom up. So as you'd go, you'd have liver cells and you'd have vasculature that's made sort of as you're printing up as you go. So one of the advantages of 3D printers is that you can specify internal structures, which would include things like the vasculature. So uh, you can make these organs out of your own cells, and that makes it, one, quicker to get the organs because you're not on a list where you could potentially be stuck on that list for months to years. And then for the rest of your life, you don't have to take immunosuppressive drugs because it's your own cells. There's no chance of your body fighting your own cells, uh, usually. 
and so uh, you'll have a higher quality of life for the rest of your life because you don't have to take these immunosuppressive drugs. Uh, so when we were talking to Gabor Forgach, he works, he runs a company called Organovo, and they're working on printing entire organs, and I promise I'm going to eventually get to the answer to your question. <laughs> uh, he's working on printing entire organs, and in the meantime, he's printing thin slabs of organs. And uh, these thin slabs are useful for things like drug testing. So if you are working on a drug for maybe treating like hepatitis on the liver, in the liver, if your drug kills all your liver cells in the thin slab, you maybe don't spend the time, money, and potential human, human suffering to bring it to the next stage of human trials. Um, but anyway, so when we were talking to him, we asked him, you know, how long do you think it's going to take before we can make a perfect replica of the human liver or of a human heart, for example? And he said that he felt like that shouldn't even be the goal. The goal should be for smart bioengineers to figure out the essential functions of an organ, of an organ, you know, so for the heart, it's pumping blood through our body, and then recreate that in whatever way is the most efficient. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that evolution has come up with the best solution for pumping blood through our body. Maybe some combina combination of robotic parts and human cells would be most efficient at pumping blood through our body, or maybe you do away with the cells entirely and you just have a robotic heart. Uh, so there are definitely people out there whose minds are more open to melding biology and, uh, you know, robotics. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are purists who are working on just making the cells to try to recreate exactly what, our, what evolution has given us uh, for our organs. So that's a good question. There are people who are working on that, which was the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> do, we have, do we have any questions from the side here? Uh, yes. Oh. oh. Um, I, I was just curious. Uh, What's the thing that you are most excited about happening soonest uh, for both of you? Hmm, you want to go first? Yeah, so we, we do this chapter called Precision Medicine, which is kind of about the ideas in, well, in some amount of time we don't do predictions. Uh, there'll be a system where when you go to the doctor, you'll kind of talk to a statistical molecular consultant who will take you know, a range of tissue samples, run a lot of statistical tests, get a bunch of information uh, and ideally be able to help you more effectively than in the modern system. So there's this cool recent discovery, I want to say as recent as 2015, called CTDNA, which is short for circulating tumor DNA. And it just turns out you can have a solid tumor, and I believe it was in a blood test, you can detect that mutant genome. And you can imagine this is a pretty tricky problem, right, because it's a mutant version of your own genome that has these particular differences that are, are dangerous. Um, and so part of why that's really cool is some cancers are mostly dangerous because you don't detect them early enough. Um, either because they're, they're subtle or because they, they seem like some other more likely disease. Uh, so if you had a system where you could just take a blood test and it would say, hey, by the way, there's, you, you have uh, the signature for a particular kind of breast cancer, that would be pretty amazing because then you could detect it early, which would give you a much better uh, chance of survival. So to me, that's really exciting. Uh, so it's hard for me to pick one technology that I'm the most excited about because I'm excited about a lot of them. So I'm excited about... I guess my, my top two at this exact moment, but if you ask me tomorrow, the answers could be different, uh, are robotic construction and gene drives to elimina eliminate malaria. Which would you rather hear about? Okay. Good choice. Uh, so, so our houses uh, often, at least in the United States and the suburbs where we live, this is true, uh, look very similar. And it takes a long time to build them. People come out to build them. And for almost any other manufacturing task, that isn't the case. Uh, and a bunch of our houses look very similar and a bit boring. So there are individuals who are working on uh, making robots that do a lot of housing construction. 
And for a long time when people worked on this, it turned out that the robots were no better than the people and just kind of a pain to have out on the construction sites. But that's sort of starting to change. So there's one technology called SAM, or the Semi-Automated Mason. And SAM essentially does bricklaying. And bricklaying may not sound like a complicated task. You know, you just take a brick, you stick some mortar on it, you lay it on top of the other bricks, and you're done. It's practically pixelated. But it turns out that, you know, to become a bricklayer, that requires two to five years of training. And it is a, a fairly complicated task. So for example, if you push the brick down too hard, then the mortar squeezes out and makes a mess. And over the course of building a brick wall, the mortar that you're working with changes viscosity. So it dries out a little bit. And when it dries out, that changes how hard you need to push down on the brick uh, and various other things about the process. So it's been very hard to teach robots how to do this process. Uh, but Sam has kind of figured it out. So Sam works along with a person, which technically makes it a cobot, a uh, cobot being a robot that works in tandem with a human. Uh, and essentially, Sam starts laying the bricks, sticking the mortar on there, and a human comes along and cleans up the mortar behind him. So that process, that step the robot doesn't do. Um, and this robot, coupled with a human, are able to lay bricks three times faster than a normal human doing the process. So it happens much more quickly, so presumably you could have a lot more beautiful, larger brick houses. And then there's country, or, uh, companies like Contour Crafting, and what, what this, uh, this is uh, Baroque Koshnevitz from the University of Southern California, and essentially it's a giant gantry, which is like a U that's upside down, and hanging from the top of the U is a 3D printer that extrudes cement that's meant for housing. And so it goes around and it lays the foundation of the house. And it also has a big robotic arm. And it can take that arm and as it's making the outside of the house, putting the house together layer by layer with the bottom layer drying as the next layer is going on top of it, it can also lay the plumbing in the house. And the only thing that's left when the house is done is you have to put the windows and the doors in. But otherwise, the house is finished. And the house is finished in about 24 hours for, I think, $5,000. I'm forgetting the exact number. But it's cheap, and it's really fast. Uh, and you can customize this. So you can tell this robot to make you know, your house with like a circular room over here, a square room over here. And anyway, so it's cheap, fast, and customizable. So we thought that was kind of neat. And uh, Baruch is working on trying to get that technology coupled with NASA, I think he has some NASA funding, to see if you could use this maybe on Mars to build space colonies before people get up there. And it would be better to have a robot doing that sort of thing because there's radiation and blah, blah, blah. It's just not a great place to build. Uh, so you'd probably want a robot to set stuff up before you start sending in your colonists. Uh, so anyway, I'm excited about robot con robotic construction. We talk about some other ideas for how to use robots to make like beautiful marble busts or to carve wood into beautiful shapes for your home and blah, blah, blah. So robotic construction, I think, is pretty exciting with some potential negative downsides uh, in terms of like worker jobs and stuff, which <laughs> is important. And if someone wants to talk about that, we can go, I can blah, blah, blah about that as well. Um, did you have a topic uh, for the book that you kind of scratched afterwards because it wasn't quite going where you wanted to go? Yeah, I can't see where you are, but I'll... I'll yeah. just... <clears throat> okay. Whatever. We actually, the book closes uh, with something we call the Graveyard of Lost Chapters. Uh, the idea is um, we... we um, so we're getting into emerging fields, a bunch of different ones, and before we go in, we don't really know what they're like. In, in, in a lot of ways, we don't know if they're legit, we don't know how complicated they are. So we had four chapters we did a pretty significant amount of research on before deciding we couldn't 
bring it to the book. So very quickly, uh, one was on quantum computing. It turns out, I don't know if there are any quantum computing people here, but uh, we came to feel like if, 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 if someone says they can explain quantum computing to you in under, under like 5,000 words, they're probably not explaining quantum computing to you. It's just a really complicated field to, we, we, we I think we did more research on that chapter than any finished chapter. Um, we, we did a chapter, we got pretty far in a chapter called Room Temperature Superconductors. Um, so you may know superconductors, it's material that can conduct losslessly, you know. So normally when you send power down uh, a copper wire, you lose some of the energy um, to just the electrons bouncing against things in there. Uh, and um, so superconductor avoids that. But the thing about superconductors, they also do a lot of other really cool stuff. Um, so if you throw a current that keeps going around a loop, well, you've got a magnetic field. And it turns out between that and this other thing called the Meissner effect, you can put a thing above a superconductor and it'll float above it, but it'll also sort of lock to it. Um, so you can turn it upside down and it'll, it'll still stay there. You can turn it sideways, it'll stay there. It's, it's, it's really magical to see. Um, and the other cool thing, which is probably a bad idea, is you could build a maglev train that could go upside down. Um, <laughs> You might, you, hopefully you get a heads up. Um, but uh, so there's all these really cool things. Oh, one other on that, if, if you have a floating thing, you can spin it. Uh, so you can have this um, power storage mechanism where whenever uh, you want to store energy, you just spin up this floating disk, and it, it, it loses very little energy. The problem, of course, is you have to keep it cold to keep superconducting. Um, uh, the, the, the very best superconductor we've ever done, I think, is at negative uh, 100 Celsius, I want to say. It's, it's in the book. Okay. Don't quote me on that. But, but, but like... That's a pretty exciting temperature. When it got to the point where liquid nitrogen could cool, that was exciting. So the idea with room temperature superconductors is you could have it sitting here and you would have a floating thing. Uh, we did one on space-based solar power, uh, which seems really, it, um, seemed kind of tantalizing. We, we read a calculation that said a panel in space could get about 40 times more energy per area than one on the ground. That's because there's no weather, there's no day-night cycle. You can move its position uh, closer to the sun. Uh, all sorts of things. Uh, it just turns out, if you look at the economics, you're probably better off building uh, 40 extra panels down here. Uh, so, and, and that will probably also be the case. In fairness to the people who are interested in this, um, the, the, the drop in solar panel pricing happened pretty recently, so they might not have anticipated that. I don't know. It's, but we talked to some NASA people. They basically agreed with that point. So that seemed like, even under its best situation, it was not feasible. Um, not in the book. Right before publication, we scrapped a chapter on advanced nuclear fission for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, so lots of research on the ash heap. Uh. <laughs> we, we had a fun notabene that also yeah. ended up on the ash heap. Uh, so it's a notabene on mirror humans. So this idea uh, is forwarded by George Church at Harvard, who has lots of awesome ideas, and he has a hand in tons of really cool biology research. But the idea here is that uh, so living organisms are made out of molecules that have a mirror version. So this is called chirality, uh, and you can think about mirror versions as like our hands, okay? So your hands are not the same. You can't lay them on top of each other uh, and have them look exactly the same, but they're made out of all the same parts. And so presumably, uh, all of like the amino acids in our body have a structure that's the mirror version uh, that we happen to not have. So we have uh, like... I think it's left-handed amino acids or something like that. We have all one version of amino acids, for example. So the idea is that you could make an organ, an organism, where all of the versions are flipped to their mirror opposite. And if you did that, that organism would be completely safe from any parasites or pathogens because parasites and pathogens are expecting a certain mirror version to lock onto and then infect that organism. So you could be free from something like malaria if you could make mirror humans, for example. Uh, so that, that's many steps away, mirror humans. And the reason we stuck it in the graveyard is because we feel like 
it doesn't really solve the problem because you wouldn't be able to mate with these mirror humans because none of the parts would be compatible. I mean, you well, could physically have sex with a mirror <laughs> human, but at the biological, at the chemical level, uh, none of the parts would be compatible. So they would essentially be a brand new species, and this brand new species would be immune to any kind of parasite or pathogen, and then we would be like the riddled zombies walking the world <laughs> as the mirror humans sort of look on in disgust. And so we felt like making a whole new species uh, selfishly didn't help us much. So we, we decided that, yes, that might be some way to er eventually eradicate disease, but it wasn't really solving the problem from the standpoint of humans living today, and these mirror organisms would need mirror food to be made so that they could digest it uh, and survive. That's how we could control them. That's, yeah. So anyway, it got kind of complicated. Um, should I tell the caraway story? Because it's kind of... Yeah, sure. Okay, so, so we're, we're, we're on a roll now. So uh, caraway and spearmint... Those two flavors are mirror versions of one another. And so well, we didn't know that at first. We discovered that while we were researching. And so we were wondering if you could make what looked like rye bread, because uh, caraway gives you this distinctive flavor of rye, uh, but actually had like spearmint in it, and you could give it to a mirror human, and based on their response, like if they thought the bread tasted good or gross, you would know that they were detecting the opposite molecule than what you had intended. Does that make sense? So we wanted to know if you could detect mirror humans this way. So we contacted a guy who specializes in uh, taste and smell. He's Steve Munger at the University of Florida, Florida State that's University. Correct, yeah. um, and so we were like, we've got a question you probably haven't heard before. Uh, and he was like, sure. And so he like let us send him an email right away. We found him on Twitter. And he was like, yeah, that's a question I've never heard before. <laughs> and, uh, and, and really, I have no idea what the answer is. It, it totally depends on how mirror humans would detect molecules. Would it be the same way as the way we do it? Uh, and so at the end, we didn't get an answer to our question, but we had a lot of fun, and we <laughs> totally wasted uh, a scientist day. But, but he, I think he had fun, too. Yeah. So anyway, mirror humans. <laughs> um, these are all really exciting topics you've been uh, talking about, but uh, it strikes me that these are all kind of very, very pragmatic, practical things that can help the world in a, in a tangible way. I was wondering if there was, if you did any research into things like, um, uh, for example, robots creating art or music or things like that, which are maybe less uh, um, practical. I, I don't remember robots creating art or anything, but yeah, almost all these have some purely aesthetic value. Uh, I, I actually think there, there's a serious argument that most of the utility of space is aesthetic. Uh, there's not an obvious economic, I've argued with people about this, but there's not an obvious economic incentive to go to the moon. Um, but we, we spent many, many billions of dollars to put people there, uh, I think in part because it satisfies some aesthetic human urge. Um, we also, with brain-computer interfaces, there were actually some examples of people uh, who made these sort of orchestras where an EEG um, uh, would read uh, neuron patterns and then output a certain note, and so people could play uh, something like an instrument using a brain-computer interface. They, they sound pretty bad, uh, I should say. Uh, it's pretty, I guess it's pretty hard to control a certain brainwave to make a particular note. You're better off with a guitar. Um, but it's still cool. People are working on this sort of thing. Um, and, and maybe someday you can imagine a really cool world where you can just sort of output a song from your brain. You don't have to go through the task of learning how to use a particular instrument. Um, augmented reality obviously has all sorts of... So, so for people who don't know, augmented reality, if you've ever played Pokemon Go, augmented reality is just kind of like a really 
really advanced version of that. You imagine instead of the Pokemon kind of floating here, it's actually on the table. It casts the right kind of shadow. It makes a certain noise when it walks. Um, but it's, of course, not really there. It's in a database somewhere. It's projected into your eyes. Um, a lot of the ideas for that, we, we do talk a lot about the practical use. Um, that's the majority of that chapter. But a lot of the current stuff is entertainment value. Or even, uh, I don't know, you might say spiritual value. There have been talk of having programs where you could go to the grave of someone and maybe see the real person who you know, recorded themselves into AR sort of float above it and talk to you in some way. Or you could go to, um, there's one group uh, in the U.S. who was proposing making it so you go to Civil War battle sites and you can see the battle in progress in the place where it happened just by having like a set of goggles. So uh, I would say in, in, I don't know about the majority, but in a lot of these we do talk about aesthetic value. Um, that, that's certainly important to us too. Um, Kelly mentioned briefly with the um, robotic construction. I mean, the main utility is, of course, economic and, and like helping poor people who can't afford houses. But it's also the case um, that, like, right now, a lot of modern housing construction uses prefab parts. There's something that's just a little less engaging uh, than what it was like, you know, 150 years ago when there was a stonemason building things on the site. Um, a robot who replaces a construction worker could have the ability to combine like woodworking skill and marble sculpting skill and all sorts of other things that are either um, not available to the middle class or, or to some extent just lost skills. Uh, so you can imagine just having more aesthetically pleasing architecture being something that middle class or even poor people can afford. So there, there are aesthetic things in almost all of these chapters. Two questions really. First of all, in the chapter about DNA editing, you mentioned you can snip DNA and you can insert different things and change sort of the behavior of the cells. Is that, could that be sort of worked forwards into something very similar to the way parasites work on their hosts? Could you change, <coughs> excuse me, change DNA sequences to change behavior further down the line? And my second question is, what do you have against chihuahuas? <laughs> there was a, there was a yeah. book that seems to go quite that hard was... on. <laughs> did, did you write that joke? No. All right, fine. I'll take I'll take uh, credit for all the jokes in the book. Um, yeah, I don't know. They're ugly. They're like little and they're yappy. And, sorry. Uh, so in terms of uh, can you use something like CRISPR-Cas9, which goes in and snips out a segment of DNA, and then you add some gene that gets replaced there, could you use that to change behavior? Uh, and the answer is, yeah, you possibly could, but behavior is notoriously difficult to link to genes. So most of the behaviors that we've looked at, if you try to say, you know, does this gene make you aggressive or something, the answer is this gene accounts for maybe 2% of the variation in aggressive behavior, and these other 100 genes account for, the other, for another 10%. And so there's not, for a lot of things, there's not like one gene that you could easily go in and snip. And we don't really understand behaviors, almost any behavior, well enough to be able to do that. It's possible that decades down the road we'll have behavior at the genetic level figured out well enough. But with something like behavior, things like environment and how much a gene gets expressed uh, and just all these complicated extra things that, that happen to us throughout the course of our lives, those end up being really important for behavior and aren't coded at the genetic level. So uh, I think it would be difficult but parasites are able to do complex manipulations of host behavior, presumably by either messing with things at the genetic level or secreting hormones that make individuals more active or something. So maybe uh, being able to do stuff like that would be really far off. So at the moment, we don't have good ways to deliver genes to every cell in the body. Uh, and you would need to do that without error in order to, to do something like what you're talking about. Um, so I think... Behavior is so complicated 
that if it happens, it's way, way off in the future. More likely, we're going to be able to use this technology in the near future to do things like Huntington's, or address Huntington's, where it's like one gene uh, that if you can fix, you can work on that problem, work on that disease. Does that answer your question? Okay. Sorry about the Chihuahua thing. <laughs> Yes, so you seem to talk a lot about the technology and a little bit about the impact, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier. What are your thoughts on like uh, automation driving loss of jobs and how that impacts economies in the world? Uh, sure, so, so the, I, we talked to a number of different economists. We talked to uh, Brian Kaplan and Noah Smith, for starters, uh, and essentially what they told us was you really can't predict what's going to happen. So Sam, who's the semi-automated mason, uh, does the work of three bricklayers when he's coupled with one, when it is coupled with one bricklayer. So you could predict that what would happen would be that two bricklayers would lose their job, one bricklayer who's maybe less well-trained because he's just assisting the robot would get paid less and would work with Sam, and you'd lose a bunch of jobs in this highly prized field where you, you get a really good wage uh, for, a couple, for you know, two to five years of training. Uh, but it's really hard to predict. So, for example, when textiles became mechanized, uh, we thought that you'd lose a lot of textile jobs. But it turned out that all of us just bought more junk. We all, just, we all bought more clothes, and you didn't end up with major job loss. So it could be the case that once you have Sam making these beautiful brick houses for a third of the cost, a lot more of us will have bigger brick houses or we'll just build a lot more things out of bricks and that that might save some of the jobs. Or you could end up in a situation where you do lose two-thirds of the bricklaying jobs, uh, but you end up with some more jobs that are high-paying, making SAM, manufacturing SAM, working on improving SAM. Uh, so you could end up with a situation where what SAM does is increase income inequality. So you could have a bricklayer who gets paid less because he's not doing most of the work, he's just helping SAM. Uh, which I'm sure is still hard work. Uh, and then you get someone else who gets paid more because they're working on uh, improving SAM and they're you know, maybe a software or some sort of engineer. So whether or not we end up in a situation where there's more jobs, less jobs, uh, more jobs of one kind that pay more or less, it's hard to know what future we're going to end up in. But uh, in it, you can imagine it taking a couple decades for that to all work out as different groups start adopting these sorts of technologies. So I think the answer is we don't know. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Was there anything you wanted to add to that? Okay. We've got a question at the back. Whether or not you used it in the book, I was just curious about what the most sort of crazy interview experience that you had. Oh. Gerwin. Yeah, it must have been Gerwin. So, um, so uh, brain-computer interfaces, uh, Zach has alluded to this already. The idea is that you have a little device on your brain that is sort of monitoring what your brain is doing and is trying to figure out what it is that you want to do, or maybe it's monitoring, oh, are you getting sleepy and now you're driving your car, so I should you know, make you a little bit more attentive, try to wake you up a little bit. Uh, so these are essentially just devices that figure out what we're thinking, what's going on with our brain, and then respond in some way. Uh, and so I asked uh, this guy named Gerwin Schock, who's uh, at a college in Albany, what he thought the future of this field would be. And what I expected his answer to be was, you know, we're going to end up with amazing prosthetics. Uh, people who are quadriplegics will suddenly be able to have, you know, all of their ability to pick things up. It'll be like nothing bad ever happened. Uh, that's what I was expecting. But the answer he gave me was that uh, at one point, we're going to be able to connect all of our brains and share all of our thoughts 
and become essentially one big superorganism. And so for a moment, I didn't know what to say because that sounds horrible to me. Uh, I, I think that marriages in society work because you don't say everything that you're thinking. Um, but he made a really, he made a good point. Uh, and his good point, he made a number of good points. One of them that really resound, or resonated with me was that, uh, so we all have experiences that we would really like to share more deeply with each other. But in some cases, words don't really meet like meet your needs. So maybe you, you know, went out in the woods and you had this amazing experience where the birds were chirping and you could smell some flowers and everything was beautiful and peaceful. Uh, and I personally couldn't explain that well enough that somebody would feel like they were actually there with me. But if we could connect our brains, you could feel that completely. Uh, or if we could connect your brain, connect our brains, maybe somebody who's experiencing depression could share with someone else what that's like. So, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, you're depressed. Why don't you go on a jog? Won't that solve it? Uh, but if you could share with someone what depression was really like, they, they might understand that more deeply and, you know, be more sympathetic. And maybe as a, an entire species, we would understand each other better. Um, but Gerwin also noted that you could sit next to your partner and think, oh, maybe I want to leave my wife. And she would know that immediately. <laughs> and, and that might not be so good. I think that's exactly what he said. That might not be so good. Uh, and I agree, that would not be so good. And so, um, so I think this is an exciting idea. And actually, I loved talking to this guy because he was so passionate and so excited about what he studied. I think we would all be so happy if we could find jobs that we loved as much as he loves. Uh, but then the other interesting thing was I assumed that this was maybe just... Uh, Dr. Schalk's view of the, the future of this field. And so I asked the other people that I was interviewing uh, as part of that chapter what they thought the future of the field was. And they gave me the prosthetics answer that I was expecting. And then I said, oh, so it's not to make one big like brain in a cloud that gets shared. I was like, that's just Gerwin. And they're like, well, no. I mean, that's, that's where we'll go next. <laughs> and I was like, what? That's, that's not where we'll go next. And so... <laughs> So anyway, I, I think a lot of them, you know, are not explicitly working to make that a reality. They're focusing on, you know, more things like treating freezing gait and blah, blah, blah. But, but apparently this is something that that field is working on, and that was really surprising. So that was my most surprising interview. Alvin Roth was on a treadmill when I interviewed him. That was interesting also. He won a Nobel Prize, so I was really happy to get his exercise uh, hour as an interview time. <laughs> I think that's all the time we have oh. uh, for questions. So uh, thank you very much, Kelly uh, and Zach. Uh, just a warm round of applause again for a fantastic <laughs>